1: Hello out there, Michigan radio land. Well, the legislature is still in recess for a second week. They won't come back until April 9th. I know people grumble and they say, wait a second, don't we have a full-time legislature? We pay them full-time. I think they're the third highest paid legislature in the country, but they're always taking these recesses. Well, of course, the legislators insist They are doing a lot of constituent work when they're in recess, and it's true. I can tell you uh, there's a lot more to being a legislator than just sitting on the floor of the state senator, the state house of representatives, and pushing green or red buttons. Uh, There's all sorts of committee work. There's behind the scenes uh, strategizing, planning, arguing over bills, and they like to be back in their districts as much as possible to interact with their constituents and with interest groups within their district. So uh, let's cut them some slack on that, but they'll be back on April 9th, but that doesn't mean that nothing is going on in state government. There is, uh, for instance, in the, uh, ongoing Flint water crisis, uh, New York attorney who is, uh, representing a group of plaintiffs in Flint suing the state, um, uh, for befouled water, uh, claims that the Michigan Attorney General's office is in a hopeless conflict of interest, uh, that there are four assistant attorneys general uh, representing both sides of the argument in Flint, uh, defending the state on the one hand and prosecuting the state on the other. And This attorney from New York is asking the judge to completely dismiss the state of Michigan from the case in this litigation. And by the way, the uh, liability to the state could be astronomical with at least three cases involving more than 20,000 plaintiffs each. Uh, That is what's at stake here. So let's watch that. This is going to go on for years, folks. Get ready. Now, by the way, uh, former Governor Rick Snyder has decided he's not completely through with politics. Uh, He signed up with a group called Two Paths America. It's been founded by former Ohio Governor John Kasich, a moderate Republican, and former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. Uh, They have formed this group uh, called Two Paths America, which is uh, aimed at trying to represent a more moderate uh, Republican approach to a lot of the issues and problems confronting the country. It's not going to call it an anti-Trump group uh, or an uh, anti-conservative right wing group, but certainly a different kind of a group. And Rick Snyder says, I am with Kasich and Schwarzenegger. Uh, also in Shiawassee County, that tornado that hit last month, uh, they asked for uh, emergency status from the state, uh, $10 million in damage supposedly, but Gretchen Whitmer said no. Uh, don't think it qualifies, and uh, the state senator, Tom Barrett, and State Representative Ben Frederick aren't too happy about that. Uh, by the way, there is um, an agreement by the state Supreme Court to take up uh, whether or not to issue an opinion on what might be called adopt and amend. And this involves the ongoing dispute from last year over whether it was proper for the legislature to accept an initiative petition from state taxpayers and state voters, which they did back in September, enact it into law rather than allow it to go on the ballot, which they can do, and then after the November 6th election, come back into session, this is the legislature, and amend the law that they already enacted just three months before uh, in a way that they felt was more acceptable to particularly business. And this is a Republican majority in the House and Senate that did this. Uh, Democrats uh, almost lock, stock and barrel voted against this action. Democrats claim and the petitioners claimed that the legislature does not have the power to adopt and amend in the same legislative session. So this... Uh, case, or I should say actually two cases, because one involves hiking the minimum wage and the other involves enacting paid sick leave, uh, have been taken up by the Supreme Court and they are going to issue an opinion. Uh, This is not involving litigation. There's no lawsuit that's been filed that they're taking up uh, an opinion as to whether or not what the legislature did was constitutional. The Republican majority in the legislature says, yes, it was. The Democrats say, no, it wasn't. And the Supreme Court said, we will start to hear arguments on this in July. So whatever opinion they come up with following that. And by the way, they could decide not to issue an opinion. And then there would undoubtedly be lawsuits filed, and that might wind its way eventually up to the Supreme Court as well. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, Lingering over all this, of course, is continuing uh, commentary and debate over Governor Gretchen Whitmer's uh, plan to hike the state gasoline tax 45 cents a gallon Uh, to raise what she says is the necessary $2.5 million a year over a 10-year period of time each year. That's how much would be needed in order to address Michigan's crumbling roads, highways, bridges, and other transportational infrastructure. Uh, The Republicans in the legislature who still control the House and Senate in this new legislature, the 100th Michigan legislature, they say, well, you know, we could uh, send the whole budget to the governor to sign this summer independent of any plan to attack the crumbling road problem. And the governor has fired back saying, "Uh uh-uh nope, not going to happen. I am not going to sign any budget that does not include what I determine to be an adequate amount of funding to attack our crumbling roads and highways and bridges. And so there could be an impasse. Uh, The governor says don't plan to go home this summer because I'm going to keep you here in session. Well, let's be clear about this. Uh, The governor herself cannot keep the legislature in session unless they adjourn sine die, which means for good for the year. Then she could call them back in special session. But even then, they don't have to do what she wants them to do. They could do nothing. But the point is, the legislature is not going to adjourn sine die. They haven't done this for decades. They adjourn sine die only at the tail end of this year, like December 30th, 31st. And in the meantime, they take numerous recesses, like the one they're taking right now. And they could continue to do this all summer. I think what she's really saying, this is the governor, is don't expect you're going to have any extended summer vacation because I'm going to hold your feet to the fire on this road funding issue. And if you haven't given me a budget that addresses this, I'm refusing to sign any other bills. So this could go on and on, folks. Could be dramatic. Uh, We'll see. It's going to perhaps drag into the fall the start of the next fiscal year october 1st are we going to have payless paydays for state employees again uh as we had momentarily back in 2007 2009 it could happen we'll be back in a minute with our first guest
0: you're listening to the political insider with bill ballinger on mtn here's bill
1: We are back with a very special guest uh, in honor of the Spartans' march to the final four in Minneapolis and maybe possibly for the first time in 19 years, a national title. I don't want to jinx them. We have got a, a proud alumnus of Michigan state university on the line, John Truscott, who is the CEO of Lansing's I'm sure largest public relations firm, which he founded, uh, way back. Uh, you know, I hate to uh, bring this up, but maybe two decades ago, uh,
2: Almost. Uh, almost <laughs> close. exactly
1: yeah. right. John Truscott, welcome to The Political Insider.
2: Great to be with you, Bill.
1: Okay, well, look, you were a, what, class of uh, 1988 1988. at Michigan State? Yeah. And uh, shortly thereafter, you hooked up with – I think, then-State Senator John Engler, when he was getting ready to run for governor in 1990. um, And uh, were you ever officially with him in the Senate, or did you just work on the campaign leading up to 1990 and then his election, and then what went on thereafter?
2: Yeah, I started on the campaign. I signed on um, several weeks before we kind of did the official exploratory uh, announcement, and then the campaign, the official announcement, came later. But it was uh, June of, I believe, 1989 when I first joined, but it was on the campaign side. We worked a little bit with the Senate office on things that we had to communicate on, but we were a separate entity.
1: Well, you were a boy prodigy. I mean, here you were... (laughs) I mean, you're barely I out of 21
2: comp- on the campaign.
1: I mean, that's incredible. And then you you were what was your official title, like press secretary, communications press secretary. director, press secretary for almost his entire tenure of 12 years? I think you left just more than a year before the end of his Term his third and final yeah, term is uh, that it was, correct? It
2: was about a, about a year shy of the end of the term. I did have the communications director title after about three or four years in the administration that allowed me to work directly with all the different state departments and the public information officers there. But uh, it was a one heck of an experience and one that I would never trade for anything else.
1: Right, and then you started your firm and uh, built it up, and and at some point I think it was about I don't know. Six seven years ago, yeah, you, uh, you merged with Kelly Rossman, and it became Truscott Rossman. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: that was in uh, June of two thousand
1: eleven. Okay. Well, look, um, let's cut to the chase here. Uh, the Spartans. Uh, Spartan Nation. They're pretty excited, and it's been a pretty rough couple of years for Spartan Nation with all the very negative publicity about the Larry Nassar sexual predation uh, accusations and convictions. Uh, How do you look at what the Spartans are doing on the basketball court now, and how important is that to resurrecting their image and reputation nationally and here in the state after everything they've been through? the last couple of years?
2: I I think it's very important. And from the standpoint of what I have always called the hit job that ESPN did on the basketball program and the football program, by stringing together disparate facts that really weren't related, um, they weren't well-researched. A lot of them were rumors that ended up being unfounded uh, or they were accusations that, uh, you know, once researched uh, didn't hold to be true. There were a few in there, but they were typically done uh, after somebody was a player years later off campus and had no relations to programs. These coaches are are really good men and great leaders uh, of their teams. And I I can't tell you how proud I am of, of what the basketball team has done to rebound, to get past. Uh, what ESPN did to them, and now really be on top. And I was just reading a Detroit News article about how the team had gotten together and aired out all their grievances, differences, and why they loved each other. And, and I, I think that what they went through last year really has made them a much stronger, better team.
1: Well, when you look at Tom Izzo, a legendary basketball coach, and Mark Dantonio in football, um, these guys are iconic figures. It must have been very rough on them uh, to have had to uh, listen to and endure all this criticism and controversy, which had really nothing to do with them or their program. They're responsible for basketball and football, respectively. Uh, How about the players? I mean, you alluded to it briefly there. Uh, Do you think they were affected by all this terrible publicity or did they kind of just block it out?
2: I think it's impossible to not be affected. Um, And I think we saw it in the way, you know, some of the distractions and the way that that they play. I can tell you because I was talking to the coaches through all this, the way that they lead their players and teach them to be good men, good students, um, grow up and and really shape them uh, into men. it's, It's really admirable and different than a lot of other programs out there. And MSU was really doing it right. So that's why when you see the the as like the hit job that ESPN did, it was so unfair, and the coaches took it pretty hard um, because they knew they were doing everything right. Um, you know, football team, for example, in the off season, you can only see your players or have contact with them eight hours a week total, and so. You can't know what everybody's doing every minute of the day. You try to provide an example. You try to lead them and then hope that they do the right thing. And I think we have seen since then a real true example of how they're trying to show the entire country and the sports world how they're doing things right and the character that uh, exists on these teams.
1: Can you tell whether uh, the players and or the coaches endured uh, criticism or catcalls or booing or whatever from other schools when they went on the road and played in, let's say, Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio? Uh, did they feel like Michigan State was being made a, a target of ridicule? Uh, I don't
2: think – I, I never heard that it came to that, and I know – for the athletic department, there were a number of coaches calling from th- throughout the country expressing their support because they know how easy it would be for them to be next. One kid steps out of line and does something wrong, and then the media slimes the whole program and, and how unfair that is. But um, there was there was a lot of quiet support that was coming in, a lot of personal phone calls and, and emails that I think helped prop up the coaches and let them know that uh, not everybody believed what they were reading. And, you know, this was at a time when uh, President Trump was kind of at the height of the fake news uh, statements and things like that. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not. But I think people saw through it. But I'll tell you, I had one example where I was out in Colorado skiing and I was watching that, that first game in the tournament with Middle Tennessee State that we lost. We had come in, we were at lunch And a guy jumped up and yelled, Oh, Izzo's a crook. He's going down for this. And I kind of spoke back. (laughs) And, uh,. (laughs) <laughs> um, had some words with the guy and put him in his place. Uh, I wish I could see that guy these days right now. <laughs> I'd love to have a little conversation about that. Absolutely. So I know it happened to Spartans across the country, and, uh, you know, we had to be careful for a while, but this is really true vindication.
1: Now, what about the team itself? How do you feel as a sports fan and as a basketball observer over the years? And look at all these other teams that Tom Izzo has had between 2000 when they won the national title and now, many of which which people thought would win the national titles in their years and did not. Now, how do you feel about this team going into the game against Texas Tech and then uh, perhaps the national title game on Monday?
2: Well, I think the past has shown just how difficult and competitive uh, big college sports is. Anybody can win at any time. And when you look at this tournament, which has been one of the best tournaments I've ever seen all the way around, the games have just been spectacular. Um, you know, it's one wrong decision, one wrong pass can lose you the game. But I really think the character of this team has shown through, um, the media has done a really good job, I think, uh, exposing some of the some of the issues that the players have had family-wise, that there are a few... Players that their mothers were uh, almost on death's door, they were so ill, and how they fought back, and you know, how it affected them, how they've recovered, and the mothers are there. You know, there's a real sense of family uh, with this team that I think has brought them together, and they needed that given the last year and the trials and tribulations that they've gone through.
1: Okay, we're going to be back in a minute to talk more about the activity this weekend in Minneapolis, but also some other things with John Truscott. Back in a minute.
0: You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill.
1: We are back with John Truscott, who is a Michigan State University alumnus, and he is the founder and CEO of Truscott-Rossman Public Relations in Lansing. Uh, This weekend, again, uh, John Truscott was just saying when we went off that he thought Tom Izzo would figure out a way to get to Texas Tech, uh, even though they have this incredible reputation as a defensive team, deservedly so. Um, Do you have any preference, John Truscott, if they beat Texas Tech as to who they might face on Monday night?
2: Uh, I don't think it matters. Virginia worries me a little bit, given how I saw them shooting <laughs> um, uh, against Purdue. It's uh, uh, there, there are some great shooting teams out there, uh, so I, I don't think it matters. You know, bring on the best team. I think they're all about equal. This will come down to who makes fewer mistakes and who has the the best coaching strategy. And I tell you, if if our guys are all hitting, when you get Kenny Goins and Matt McQuaid and and them really contributing, they're almost unstoppable. So. Um, you know they've really got to got to pull it together and, and make sure that they're they're at the top of their game. And I this is this is where Tom Izzo excels in getting these guys ready for this. So I'm looking forward to great performances. Okay, hey, let me
1: ask you another thing. Uh, your former boss uh, John Engler was the interim president of Michigan State University for a year. Then he resigned earlier this year. Um, I think you were doing some work with. Uh, John Engler and or the board of trustees of Michigan state while he was the interim president. Um, it, Appears to me, and I'm really ignorant about this. Maybe you can clear it up. I think, you know, a lot of the people that uh, John Engler brought in, like former Supreme Court Justice Bob Young, uh, have left uh, with John Engler. I'm just wondering, Emily Garant appears to me to still be there. Uh, what about Kathy who who is, I think, the government relations person, former interim president of CMU? Is she still there?
2: Still there doing a great job. Yeah.
1: So in other words, uh a lot of the people that John Engler brought in to help him are still there even though he's gone.
2: They they are and they are top notch talent. Now whether they choose the standard new president would be, you know, their call, but they're still there doing a, a great job. Uh, Carol Viventi was there, had some health issues. Um, but, uh, you know, Bob Young, you're, you're bringing in a former Supreme Court justice, a guy who had a distinguished legal career as an attorney and through the court system. Um, he was definitely the, the right guy. You know, unfortunately, we're dealing with, um, in so many places these days, the politics of, of a situation. And when you have a, a partisan board, uh, their motivations are a little bit different than somebody who's appointed by the governor, like in most of the other universities. And I've argued uh, that the three top universities that have elected boards, they should be appointed by the governor, no matter who that is, because then I think there's a clearer line of accountability to the administration and to somebody who is elected that people know. Um, but a governor has different opportunities. You're not appointing people who have to clear a convention to be nominated. So your, your pool of candidates is different. Um, that's a constitutional changes for others to make that decision, but I think it would be appropriate.
1: Well, what you say has a lot of support, but as you point out, it would take a constitutional amendment, and that means a vote of the people. It would have to be put on the ballot either by petition or by a two-thirds majority of each chamber of the legislature. And, of course, we've had uh, nearly 60 years <laughs> to make that change change and nobody's come close to trying that,
2: right? Right. But given what's happened now at some of the universities, uh, what's going on at Wayne State and the controversies with their medical school, what's going on at Michigan State, the public at least has more awareness than they've had in the past of the governance of these multi-billion dollar institutions. that are so important, today, not only in terms of our economy and, and what they generate, but for research. And the education of the the leaders of our future. So I I think that there's a heightened awareness that might get some support now that people are aware of some of the problems that have gone on.
1: From what you've seen and heard, do you expect that the search committee for a new permanent president is going to come through with a nominee uh, on schedule, let's say, June or July? Do you think that's going to happen?
2: Last I knew uh, and had read and heard from people, they were still on track. So I think this is one of those issues that they, they really have to. Uh, to to restore confidence uh, in people that that there's strong governance in place. This is their primary job, hiring the president. Um, so if you can't conclude your primary responsibility according to the schedule that you set out, you know what else? What other problems are there? So I, I think for the governance of the of the university, and then also for confidence that this board can govern, I think that's very important.
1: Let's switch gears. Uh, you are on. And correct me if I've got the title wrong, the Michigan Capital Commission. i uh, vice chair. You're vice. Okay. Um, tell me, what is that group and what is going on at the Capitol going forward? I mean, there's been lots of construction in the Capitol over the last yep. several years. There are big plans, I think, coming up in the future. Can you tell our listeners about that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's really exciting, and, and for somebody who's worked around the legislative process and around state government, virtually my entire career, that building is, is such an iconic public museum uh, that, that we work in every day. Uh, the Capitol Commission was formed, there, there used to be um, another governing body that was made up mainly of legislators, but when term limits came in, there were fewer people willing to put in the time. Just didn't know the history of the building. And then they're here today, gone tomorrow almost. So there was legislation about three years ago to form the Capitol Commission, transfer all the authority into it. We are responsible in, in govern the Capitol building, the physical infrastructure, and the grounds around it. So Capitol Square, as we call it. Um, What we have embarked on, when you have a building that's as old as it is, that did go through a really extensive uh, renovation 30 years ago, it was in need of going through it again. I mean, when you think of your house, you have to do constant maintenance. That's what we're doing with the Capitol. So the first phase two years ago was getting the outside of the building sealed up, sealing up the dome, getting rid of the leaks. Then last year, we worked on the inside of the building, fixed up damages, water damage, things like that, cracks. Now what we are doing is replacing the heating and cooling system to a geothermal system, so it's much cheaper than it has been. We're converting to LED lighting, so our electricity costs will go down. These will be uh, really good long-term fixes. And now the new project is uh, a visitor center or heritage center. We don't have the official name for it, but anybody who's been to the U.S. Capitol knows that you go in as a visitor in this uh, kind of, it's it's a museum. It's the history of the building and the people and, and how it was built and, and just unique things to look at. It's a true education center. We're going to build a very small version of that. Uh, and at the same time, it'll be dramatically increasing safety for whether the kids uh, enter the building, where they gather. We can have enhanced camera systems and and things like that. If there were ever a crisis in today's Capitol, the way it's configured today, there's nowhere for the visitors to go or nowhere for the school kids to go to gather for safety and then to leave the building. This will provide us those opportunities. Uh, plus, we'll have some very large conference rooms to hold uh, events uh, that are related to the Capitol. And it's, um, you know, it's about a two-year project uh, and uh, it's underway and it's really exciting.
1: That's going to be on the north side, mainly of the Capitol, the northwest yeah, kind of side, the, is that the, right?
2: The northwest Corner. Yeah, it'll wrap around the building a little bit, but we can't. Uh, we may have to uh, move a few of the geothermal wells, but uh, overall, it's it's on open space, and it will it'll create for anybody who drives by there. Uh, it's going to be a, a beautiful, very impressive uh, entrance, and important for us. School buses can now pull up right next to the building, unload the kids, and the kids don't have to deal with traffic or crossing the streets or anything. They can enter right into the building. So that safety aspect is really important.
1: When you mentioned the commission and you said it's been changed – three years ago. uh, Who is on the commission now? How big is it? Are there still some legislators on it? Uh, Who who are exactly the members? I mean, you technically right now are in the private sector yourself serving on the commission. I mean, are most of the people on it from the private sector or not?
2: Yeah. So um, six members, uh, the secretary of the Senate and the clerk of the house are automatically on it. So that provides some continuity and a a connection to the, the legislative bodies, which have a lot of offices, and the chambers in the building, so they're very important. Um, the uh, clerk and the secretary of the Senate or the speaker and the majority Leader each get uh, an appointment. The governor gets uh, two appointments, um, and then there are a total of six, so I can't remember who gets that last appointment. But we have a former legislator, former Senator Roger Kahn, uh, is on there. Um, Bill Candler, who was the, can't remember if he was the secretary of the Senate or the clerk of the House, is on there. Uh, as well as a few others it's a great group we love the building and uh, we are committed to keeping it open to the people of michigan
1: wow incredible um keep up the good work look i wish we had more time i want to talk about michigan state's mass timber building whatever that is but it sounds impressive but (laughs) we don't have time we can't talk about it so thank you very much anytime we'll get you another time thank you very much john truscott ceo of Truscott-Rossman Public Relations in Lansing. This is MTN,
0: and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill.
1: We are back with our last guest today, our special guest, Dave Doyle. Dave Doyle has a legendary career in Lansing. Uh, He was, I'm going to have him uh, straighten us out and tell us uh, the true story about his tenure. Uh, He was, I think, originally uh, the acting chairman of the Michigan Republican Party when Spencer Abraham, who had been the chairman, uh, left to go to Washington to take an important job Uh, with the U.S. House of Representatives Republican Caucus. And then Dave Doyle must have been so good, uh, they elected him, the Republicans did, chairman of the Republican Party in his own right for a couple of terms, I think. Uh, Is that right, Dave
3: Doyle? Uh, Yes, good morning, Bill. How are you? I am
1: splendid. Thank you for being with us.
3: I was executive director of the Michigan Republican Party uh, during the 1990 election. Uh, Spence was still the party chair, but as you said, he was out in Washington um, working for Vice President Quayle, I believe.
1: Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah. You know, and and then uh, when uh, Governor Engler uh, uh, was successful, or John Engler was successful in that race, uh, he asked me to run for party chair, and I did do that twice, and. Ran unopposed, which is the best way to run at a convention.
1: That's almost a novelty these days.
3: (laughs) It certainly (laughs) is.
1: You must have been doing something right, so you served two straight terms. Now, as I remember it, you were getting ready to maybe go and help uh, Vice President, former Vice President at that time, Dan Quayle, maybe run for president in uh, 1996. But then he decided not to.
3: Right? Uh, Correct. I um, had. Spent a fair amount of time talking to uh, Vice President Quayle and was looking to move to Carmel, uh, Indiana. And uh, Dan Quayle had some health problems that uh, helped him make that decision not to run.
1: So then you decided to come back to Lansing. And at that point, uh, you affiliated with Marketing Resource Group, which was a very prominent Republican. A consulting firm in Lansing, and I think you became uh, vice president. And you you've been there almost 25 years. Uh, yeah,
3: yeah, had had a uh, uh, great time working with uh, Tom Shields and a whole lot of other people who, over the years, have worked uh, at Marketing Resource Group and learned a lot about the public relations business and. Uh, the political consulting business,
1: also MRG, as its acronym uh, is known, uh, Marketing Resource Group. Uh, they did what was called association management. But did you concentrate more on the politics part of it while you were there?
3: Yeah, I. Uh, most of my work was uh, political consulting, but I did do public relations work and worked with a lot of different firms. Uh, And associations throughout the state. Um, And when you've been around as long as uh, I have, I've worked with various associations on both sides of the issue. Sometimes worked with them, sometimes worked against them on various ballot proposals or other issues.
1: But now, uh, dramatically, here, you've decided to strike out on your own and form your own firm, uh, which is going to be, I think, you can tell me, uh, tell us, um, devoted to electing Republicans in various campaigns around the state. Uh, What is the name of the firm, and uh, what do you see lying ahead for you in 2020 on the ballot?
3: Sure. Um, The the company is called D2 Strategy and Research, and uh, we'll be working with Republican clients, uh, uh, judicial clients, uh, various uh, ballot proposals, whether they're local uh, or statewide. You know, it's way too early to tell what may be on the ballot for 2020. But there are a lot of local issues uh, that come up and also be doing public relations work.
1: So, public relations work not necessarily for politicians or for office holders, but maybe even associations or other interest groups?
3: Yes, yeah.
1: Okay. And when you say D2, uh, is you have a website?
3: Yes, it's uh, uh, d2strategyandresearch.com. So, www, um, uh, Dot D2. d 2 The number two strategy and research. Uh, .com the um, uh, it, it is also abbreviated as d the number 2 hyphen sr.com <laughs> either way should get you to the website. Okay
1: all right uh, well look when you look at uh, 2020 as you say we really don't know what's going to happen i mean honestly there is this litigation going on in federal court uh, involving potentially the state Senate, which is not supposed to be on the ballot in 2020. And some people are thinking, you know what? Um, The Democrats uh, would like to see uh, the entire state Senate up for grabs in new districts, uh, redrawn to uh, get away from gerrymandering, not in 2022, which is when they're supposed to be up next, but in 2020 you think that's going to happen, and would that have some big impact on what you're going to do?
3: Well, it would have a huge impact, um, but I have no idea what these uh, judges will do. Uh, (laughs) And the the question is, how does that impact the term limits on senators if they were to have the state senate up? Right. And you've had some people speculate that, you know— the whole Senate will be up, but only uh, a few of the districts would be impacted. Uh, that's that's difficult because once you start to change two or three districts, there's usually a uh, domino effect.
1: right. right. absolutely. and and uh, also, there is the u s. <laughs> Supreme Court considering two cases uh, involving gerrymandering in, Maryland and North Carolina. And what if the U.S. Supreme Court comes up with a decision saying, uh, you know, none of this is anything that the courts ought to involve themselves in, and that would perhaps completely rub out the litigation involving Michigan at the appeals court level. Is that a possibility?
3: Yes, I, I of course. Anything is a possibility once you get uh, to judges particularly those who are appointed for a lifetime. And uh, the only thing that's guaranteed out of this process is uh, various law firms will continue to do well in the (laughs) battle.
1: Well, and public relations firms and or political consulting firms like you could do well, too, because you're going to be asked for a lot of expertise and advice and counsel to candidates running under really uh, unknown, unforeseen circumstances, right? New districts? Yeah, no,
3: no question about it. And, uh, you know, the the even if the redrawing of districts, you know, goes as planned under this new system, with this idea that you try to draw as many competitive districts as possible, I really don't think this is what the uh, public is expecting, because you, the more districts you draw, the, as competitive, means the more TV ads, the more mail, the more robocalls uh, people are going to see all around the state.
1: Um, well, not only, yeah.
3: Political consultants, uh, TV companies and radio companies, but that's great for the uh, general public.
1: Well, also, I think it's going to involve a lot more money. I mean, if, if all these ads are going to have to be put up to educate people about the new lay of the land, uh, is that something that you're going to try and get into or have to get into in your firm to raise money or to find people out there who can raise money or groups that can raise money for these candidates?
3: Yeah, I think the fundraising business is going to explode. I mean, it certainly has over the course of the last 10 years um we can help uh, the new firm d2 strategy and research uh, can help raise a little bit of money but we're not going to get into the fundraising business um
1: uh, you're going to operate out of an office or out of your home or what do you think
3: uh right now i'm i'm a thrifty guy so for a while we're going to be operating out of my home and uh, you know perhaps get an office in downtown next year.
1: Hey, that's the way a lot of uh, entrepreneurial billionaires started out on their kitchen table Uh, at uh, home, right?
3: Well, a a lot of the vendors that we have worked with over the years uh, work out of their home.
1: There you go. Listen, I could go on forever with you, Dave Doyle. You got so many stories to tell. Thank you very much for being our guest on The Political Insider, Dave Doyle head of D2 Strategies and Research. Bill,
2: thank you very much.